Hi, you're listening to Trustees Without Borders, a podcast production of the Virginia Tech Institute for Policy and Governance. I'm your host, Andy Morikawa, in the IPG studio on the campus of Virginia Tech. Joining me are the interviewers for today's show, Stephen Licardi and Laura Nagel. Stephen and Laura, would you please introduce yourselves to our listeners? I'm Stephen Licardi. I'm a social worker, spoken word poet, and performance activist. I'm Laura Nagel. I'm working as the Community-Based Learning Projects Manager here at the Virginia Tech Institute for Policy and Governance. Today's program features Julia Dinsmore. Julia is a poet, singer, and educator from Minnesota and author of the 2000 book, My Name is Child of God, Not Those People. By sharing her firsthand account of dealing with poverty, Julia teaches her audience about socioeconomic inequality while empowering people to be part of the solution. She challenges stereotypes about people in poverty and asks compelling questions about why people in power have not done enough to eradicate structural barriers that reinforce generational poverty. Julia Dinsmore, welcome to Trustees Without Borders. It's great to have you on the show. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you. Julia recently served as keynote listener for the Amplifying Unheard Voices Symposium hosted at Virginia Tech by the University Libraries, Center for Humanities, and the Advancing the Human Condition Symposium of the Office for Inclusion and Diversity. The goal of the symposium was to acknowledge the many groups in Southwest Virginia that are largely invisible in the media and in research, despite being integral to the fabric of our communities. Academics and community members were invited to listen to each other's stories to consider how to partner directly in community-based research. Well, thank you, Andy and Julia, for being here. Um, and we, we actually wanted to begin with some discussion about the Amplifying Unheard Voices Symposium that was held yesterday. Um, so first, Julia, what were some of the key highlights from that event from your perspective? Well, meeting all the divine <laughs> people that attended is number one on my list, being a relational person that I am. Um, okay. And um, it was an interesting um, thing to think about is not rather than being a keynote speaker, you're a keynote listener. And um, in your experience, how, how does that differ? What, what exactly was the difference? And what, what, what did you do instead of being a keynote speaker as a keynote listener? Well, it was a little bit challenging for me to wrap my brain around what being a keynote listener would be about. Mm -hmm. But I am a good listener. Mm -hmm. um, and I was a little bit like, whoa, how am I going to do this? I'm used to running my mouth. I'm used to being the keynote speaker. Mm -hmm. I'm used to being talking. I'm from oral culture. Mm -hmm. You know, we all talk at the same time and manage to communicate quite well. But um, so I still was unsure at the beginning of the program and just trusted that uh, my instincts would kick in mm -hmm. and I would know how to proceed. <laughs> And what I ended up doing was being more of an MC because that felt right. 
But in order to be a good MC, you have to be a good listener. So mm -hmm. I guess I was the keynote listener mm -hmm. and MC. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and Stephen, you were at this event. And um, can you describe to us sort of how the, the flow of the event went and, and maybe what were some of the highlights for you too? Sure, yeah. So I, I really loved just the... Um, uh, to use a cliche term, uh, the diversity of the speakers at the event. I thought um, the curators did an incredible job of um, giving a wide perspective on what it is like from different cultural backgrounds, identity backgrounds, um, to approach this idea of poverty and to uh, live within, alongside, among um, whatever it means to be impoverished or in poverty and and the different facets that kind of come out of that and I think Julia did a really wonderful job of um, inter interjecting humor and and stringing things together and and uplifting portions of people's stories in a way that allowed us to hold them in the moment and really sit with them and feel them um, to really gain an empathic understanding of of what of the stories we were bearing witness to so I felt really honored to be able to witness that. Yeah, I was not for it. Jumping right to the next speaker after the first speaker, our native sister got up and delivered such, I mean, not a word out of place. Yeah. A beautiful story. I'm like, okay, wait a minute, we gotta take a breath here. Yeah. Cleanse our palate, if you will, yeah. so that we can receive mm -hmm. the messages that she shared with us and get ready to receive the next speaker's story. Mm -hmm. mm. Was there was there time for the audience to kind of debrief it or just you sort of reflected on the story and people just took well, it I in? I would jump up and add a little nugget <laughs> of understanding or, or trying to be somewhat of a cultural translator because you know, for those of us who come from oral cultures, we have different communication patterns and ways of of communicating with one another. And people from print culture, it's two different things. Mm -hmm. So right away, being able to invite everybody to make noise, mm -hmm. like this is a good thing. Yeah, yeah. And interrupting is a good thing in our culture it's not seen as rude people from print culture see interrupting as rude but in our culture it's additive you know it's yeah. it's a highly desirable <laughs> the more information you can get from other people the better off you are right. since we primarily get our information needed to live our lives from people right. <clears throat> um so i had fun just with um, that underlayment yeah. throughout the morning yeah. part of the program and then into the afternoon as well mm -hmm. uh, after we broke up into groups. But just trying to help people in every little opportunity I could get to bridge that gap mm -hmm. between our different ways of processing information. Yeah. Because yeah. it is a real thing right. that a lot of people don't know about. Sure. It <laughs> I'm thinking too of the dichotomy. It's not really a dichotomy, but the spectrum of introversion to extroversion. Or, but even I think you're right. If if you're in an academic setting that where the conference was hosted, there is an expectation for how these conferences go, and 
and when is the time to speak and when is the time to, you know, so. But in the afternoon, there was, were there breakout groups where um, each of those speakers sat with partners from academia and, and then talked about um, what the options were for working together? Or what, what did that look like in the afternoon? In the afternoon, we did a World Cafe-style discussion and people who were interested in pursuing relationship with whichever speaker mm-hmm. um, caught their fancy mm-hmm. um, went to separate rooms mm-hmm. and then held discussions mm-hmm. around tables that went towards um, identifying places where people could work together mm. in the future. Mm-hmm. And that was very interesting, too. Mm-hmm. I went and visited most of them. Mm-hmm. It was hard to tear myself away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> did, you have, did you sit in on any of those that you thought... Um, well, I wasn't able to participate in any of the I conversations, see. Yeah. unfortunately. Yeah. Um, yeah. I yeah. heard good things. Okay. Well, thank you. That was... It just sounded like a really interesting program, so thanks for sharing more about it. I had a blast. And I felt good about letting people know, you know, I'm bilingual, I speak bad English. <laughs> I grew up speaking bad English, then I learned how to, you know, talk proper <laughs> when I need to pass. And now I'm just too old and tired to try to pass for middle class anymore, but, um, and I don't have the right clothes either. <laughs> and warn people, you know, our language is very colorful, and so I hope you're not offended if some curse words come out, but... Um, that's a part of uh, the emotional intelligence from people from, from generational poverty. And, and scholarship has now proven that cussing is a pain reduction. Mm-hmm. It's one of our survival skills. Mm-hmm. But it's also a part of being emotionally literate, mm-hmm. which we are, mm-hmm. by and large. Mm-hmm. And people who grew up in print culture uh, get a little estranged from their emotional mm-hmm. being mm-hmm. and tend to kind of like reside in their heads more than we do. Mm-hmm. So I was, again, trying to build bridges mm-hmm. up toward understanding because mm-hmm. a lot of times we're raised to disregard somebody who has a foul mouth mm-hmm. as if we're less than. Mm-hmm. And let's take another look at that. Because mm-hmm. sure. yeah. usually when people are cussing, they're expressing what an emotion. Sure, sure, right. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. That's that's very interesting. Yeah. Um, okay. Anyways, it, it did give some freedom to the other speakers to like just be real in their skin. Sure. And not have to. Because sure. when we come to these institutions, right. you know, right. it can be a little overwhelming. Sure. Yes. Like oh. Yeah. <laughs> right. There's a whole history How am I of very. To behave? Right. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I believe that's a whole um, area of study is uh, the the uh, academia as an, an institution and all of the, the the hierarchy of power and all of the, um, the rules formal and informal know. rules and yeah um, yeah so it's it's sometimes challenging to have those conversations but I think that's one of the it sounds like that's one of the goals of uh, events like this so. Okay. And so. I wanted people to be in their authentic cultural integrity. Yes. You mm-hmm. know, just be you. Sure. So I tried to role model that, and mm-hmm. I think it worked. <laughs> Although everybody there could hold their own anyway. <laughs> but 
maybe some people in the audience even got more comfortable in their skin mm -hmm. too because mm -hmm. the depth and level mm -hmm. of curiosity, intellectual curiosity that was expressed in their questions mm. and discussion was just awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Hmm. Well, um... So we wanted to know if you would be, um, you know, willing and able to share some of your poetry with us today, one that maybe represents uh, your work. Sure. I was, I'll share My Name Is Not Those People, the poem that started everything off for me, um, graduated into the print culture world. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine getting a book contract and you're illiterate? But I did it. Mm -hmm. I taught myself how to write because this poem dropped into my spirit, you know, as a, what do you call that? A survival skill because somebody called us those people. Mm -hmm. Those people don't need housing. Mm -hmm. We give them turkeys at Christmas time. Like you can live in a turkey, right? Mm -hmm. And I was so hurt. There's more of a story to that, the backstory that I won't go into. But I went home and made my own Prozac. We sing mm -hmm. and do poetry and use our artistic voices to heal ourselves and to survive mm -hmm. in an unjust world. So I wrote this poem. If I can find it here, <laughs> I'll, I'll share it with you. <clears throat> here it is. My name is not those people. I'm a loving woman, a mother in pain, giving birth to the future where my babies have the same chance to thrive as anyone. My name is not inadequate. I did not make my baby daddy leave us. He chose to and chose not to pay child support, although <laughs> on a migrant worker's income, there wasn't enough left. Truth is, though, there isn't a job base for all fathers and mothers to pull their families out of poverty in America while society turns its head, my children pay the price. My name is not problem and case to be managed. I'm a capable human being and a citizen, not just a client. The social service system can never replace the compassion and concern of loving mothers and fathers and grandmas grandpas, aunties, uncles, cousins, community, all the bonded people who need to be but are not present to bring our children forward to their potential. My name is not lazy, dependent, welfare mother. If the unwaged work of parenting, homemaking, caregiving, and community building was factored into the gross domestic product, my work would have untold value. How about a finger snap for that one, huh? We can practice oral culture in here too. <clears throat> I wanna just say that one again because I love that line today. If the unwaged work of parenting, homemaking, caregiving, and community building was factored into the gross domestic product, my work would have untold value. And why is it 
that my middle-class sisters who live across the street from me, whose husbands support them to stay home and raise their children, why do they get glorified and they don't get called lazy and dependent? My name is not ignorant, dumb, or uneducated. I got my Ph.D. <laughs> you can call me Dr. Dinsmore. I got my Ph.D. from the University of Life School of Hard Everything. I live with an income of $621.169 in food stamps for me, my three kids, and lots of other kids in every neighborhood we ever lived in. Kids are good little survivors. They know whose mama still has food in the cupboard at the end of the month, the middle of the month. You know, we've been the safety net all along. The world won't tell the truth about us. They want to propagate lies so that people can continue to be pit against one another down here truth is we've been the safety net all along. I better get back to the poem. <clears throat> I live with an income of $621 with $169 in food stamps for a lot of people. Rent is $585. That leaves $36 a month to live on. I am such a genius at surviving that I could balance the state budget in an hour. We should have welfare mothers on every state budget committee because we know how to stretch a dollar into the next century. Mm. Never mind that there's a lack of living wage jobs underpinning everything. Never mind that it's impossible to be the sole emotional, social, spiritual, and economic support for a family. Never mind that parents are losing our children to gangs Drugs, stealing, prostitution, the poverty industry, social workers, kidnapping, the streets, the predator. Forget about putting more money in our schools. Just keep building more prisons. My name is not lay down and die quietly. God gave me a big mouth. Oh, I got a big heart. Now I found out I got a big mind. I grew up believing my IQ was equal to my income. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my butt is bigger than Kim Kardashian, so that rich should count for something in this world, too. <laughs> my love is powerful, and the urge to keep my sons alive will never stop. All children need homes. All children need people who love them. All children need safety and the chance to be the people they were born to be. The wind will stop before I acquiesce to my sons becoming a statistic. Now here's where I'm talking to the dude that inspired the poem who said those people don't need homes. Mm -hmm. We gave them turkeys. Mm -hmm. Before you give in to the urge to blame me. Because that's what we do in America. We blame shame and scapegoat people that were left out by design mm -hmm. in the first place. Mm -hmm. Before you give in to the urge to blame me. 
the blame that lets us go blind and unknowing into the isolation that disconnects your humanity from mine. Take another look and don't go away. For I am not the problem, but the solution. And <clears throat> my name is not those people. Beautiful. Thank you so much for that. Um, I, I love how you have this style of being able to weave in and out of the poem and, and step back from it and, and add more perspective and more statistics and then dive right back into it, which um, is it's really refreshing because it's you're not you're not even confined by your own poetry which is so so lovely and and inspiring and so i wanted to understand a little bit more about like how you started writing poetry and 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 making music and where where that background comes for you i grew up irish catholic where you entertain yourself and singing was just in me and we knew, I knew the cremation of Sam McGee by heart. I mean, how many, like 30 pages long fine print? <laughs> you know, that Robert Service poem. We, you entertain yourself when you don't have money to go on vacations and do what middle class people do to entertain themselves. You entertain yourself. So storytelling and singing and dancing and performative kinds of things on the front porch and in the parlor. It's just normal. And then as I was younger and trying to become what I thought I was supposed to be, middle class, I was emulate, trying to emulate that, but I had been, I was functionally illiterate and so I was trying to pass, and and I would buy books <laughs> that um, my peers were reading and put them in the bookshelf to pretend I <laughs> had read them. And nobody had told me, you know, girl, you come from oral culture people. <laughs> oh, and by the way, you probably have a good dose of dyslexia. Back then we called it word blindness. You know? <laughs> but it was pre-diagnosing anything. Um, Nobody told me, it's, you, you just have a different way of processing information and sharing and learning and, and, but poetry and singing was my voice, was my, and storytelling is my first language, really. And the thing about having storytelling as your first language, your story always gets interrupted by the dominant culture. Mm because people don't have the attention span or the listening skills or even the knowledge to know that this is a important form of communication mm -hmm. that is large enough to contain a holistic part of your being. Mm -hmm. We don't live in our heads. Mm -hmm. We don't, it's just a whole another world. So I just would try to show up in my community because I'm community minded and feel strongly that contributing is so important, mm -hmm. especially when the world views you as, a, you know, a suck, mm -hmm. as somebody sucking on the public tit. 
um, it's a deep human need to want to contribute <laughs> to the betterment of your people and your world and your community. And I would go and try to participate, <laughs> citizen participation things, and oh, the language barriers were just awful. Mm -hmm. So I'd show up with my poems and songs. And in my own form of communicating. And so the songwriting took off. And then the, that is my first, that poem I just shared with you is the first thing I ever wrote that was longer than a song. Isn't it wild that it spread around the whole entire world? Mm -hmm. The very first thing you ever wrote mm -hmm. that was longer than a song? And I don't really write them, they write themselves through me. It's like my songs would just download and all the harmonies at the same time. So I had like a phonographic, you know, when you, you learn to compensate, to learn if you can't learn by reading. So you listen, you learn how to hear. You have an ear inside your ear. You have, mmm. <laughs> Lots of other senses to guide you along the way and pick up on. What was your question? I think you, I think you got it. I, think yeah, you I do want to tell you. Yeah. I have done a two-hour version of that poem mm -hmm. in, where I teach with um, Hecua Higher Education Consortium for Urban Affairs in the cities. It's a consortium. We, it's, college students come and spend a semester on an experiential 16-credit undergraduate and I worked myself up from a one-time speaker to a community faculty now and I use my songs and poetry as in the book now it's in the curriculum um, and I teach from them you know a good poem is still is a living thing Whereas the native, my Native American friends taught me, they said, you have to learn how to guard your stories better. I'm like, what? They are living beings and sacred. There's some things you can't rush. There's a certain way that you have to guard them and know when to share them. So I've been getting schooled by all of these amazing people my whole life about the power of these other languages. Well, actually that segue is really well into the next question. Um, because in reading, in reading in your book about the way you describe this poem, this fam famous poem. You really need to stay focused on the microphone. Okay, yeah, uh, it's really close to my face, I'm sorry. <laughs> anyway, we can edit this part out. Um, so I, I love the way you personify your famous poem, My Name Is Not Those People. Um, you describe her, this poem is a her, a living being, like you said, wearing a regal evening gown at the U.S. Senate when the poem was read into the c congressional record, Am I, if I'm understanding. Yes, they yeah. sent me a copy of the congressional record, Golden Boss. Yeah. Was my poem in it? I didn't even know what a congressional record was. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Beloved Paul Wellstone, Senator Paul Wellstone read it. Mm -hmm. I found his footage on C-SPAN of him reading it. Hmm. I do it better than him. <laughs> Probably. Yes, heart, right, right. Missing <laughs> you down here on earth. Um, well, so that's, got, that's a story in and of itself is how that came, came about. Um, and 
But then you also described some of the negative impacts as uh, when she was kidnapped and when the poem was reprinted in this sociology textbook uh, without your permission. And furthermore, to make matters worse, it was accompanied by your biography, but it was inaccurate. So there was no really communication with you about the use of this poem, first of all, and also, you know, to get your your biography accurate. Um, so I guess going back to to what you're saying about um, giving a voice to these stories, and particularly when people are um, up against, they have they're struggling to keep to make sure that they're lining up childcare and work and everything. Um, to to also stay engaged with the community is a big ask, and sometimes their voices then are not heard at those community engagements. So I guess my my thought was when in in publishing your own words about what happened to this poem, um, do you feel that you've reclaimed the narrative a little bit and addressed this kidnapping situation, or has it not really been rectified? The fact that this poem is now out there and and it's difficult to protect it at this point. Poem sure has her own life. <laughs> I just posted on my Facebook, she's hanging on the wall at Cornell West class on W.E.B. Du Bois. I mean, people send me photos of where my poem, because I started making wall hangings out of them. and She's just all over the world. Indigenous people especially love poem. That's when I learned that, oh my gosh, they do us the same all over the world. Hmm. You know, people started telling me before I got a computer, you should Google yourself. And I didn't know what Google was. I thought it was something nasty. <laughs> Google myself. Oh, why are they saying that? <laughs> and then when I finally got a computer, I'm late, you know, to everything. But I got a computer and finally figured out what Google was, and I Googled myself. Now I know why you're all telling me this. Poem was all over the world by that point. And my son says, Mom, why you got a world famous poem? We're still on food stamps. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Mm -hmm. But it hurt my feelings mm -hmm. that um, I can't go anywhere without hearing, oh, yes, we had that poem at the Battered Women's Shelter in our book of survival manual. Oh, we studied that at Yale at blah, blah, blah. I mean, there is not one place in this country I can't go to and people are studying my poem or using it or it's on someone's website or they make a video of it, whatever. It's just out there. But the one that hurt was the sociology textbook. That's the one that really hurt because I was like, kind of living in my car at the time. And it was selling for $33, that was back then. And so I actually tried to find a lawyer and they did, they said, well, oh, your poem is out in the public domain. There's nothing you can do about that. And it still continues to um, get used, but I, I'm glad that it gets used in a way help uplift my people so that our backbones can straighten up. I've witnessed it where people actually like experience a measure of liberation under 
their experience with classism. And that is the big issue we haven't figured out how to talk about in America. So I'm contributing. I got my, my whatever, my little jewel in my crown, right? <laughs> oh, and then it be morphed into this book. And my best compliments are when women in prison are stealing it from each other. I wish people would send more books to the women's prisons so they don't gotta steal it. And then the other compliment is, girl, sounds like this. My kids thought there was something wrong with me. And I'm like, what? Yeah, they've never seen me stay up all night reading a book before. You know, we become literate by reading, mm -hmm. little tiny pieces at a time. Mm -hmm. And when are you going to write another one? How did you tell my story? I said, because it's our story. Mm. So that makes me feel good that poem is useful. Last week I heard about a small town in western Minnesota that a regular mom in the community decided to organize her town because she doesn't like that people are experiencing homelessness and hunger in her town. And she gathered at Bert and Gert's coffee shop, rest cafe, and she asked my permission, can I make special printouts of your poem? and gave one to every single person, 30-some people attended a discussion about poverty in their town. And they popcorned reading my poem all around the cafe and brought it to life, mm. much the same way I do when I'm teaching with poem. She took that cue and energized the people who attended, and I'm so excited about that. Because when we can build capacity like that, and poem can be useful mm -hmm. to help people recenter their hearts mm -hmm. and souls <laughs> and their best thinking on being one another's keepers, then we're going in a good direction. So now they want to read my book. And then I'll go to the town and talk with them after they've read book and we can get into some deeper discussions because dismantling our internalized classist garbage is work. Mm -hmm. it is, yeah. We have strayed so far from one another, we don't even know how to talk to each other anymore. Mm -hmm. And a big part of it is this classism stuff. Mm -hmm. So my mission is to help people get over that start acting like human beings better again. <laughs> and and I, um, I think uh, that, that comes to mind, the question of how we communicate today with uh, the youngest generation online so much, on phone so much, um, and then, you know, this increasing wealth divide between the lowest income and the highest income. And um, so I do hear you saying that it's getting worse and, and are those some of the reasons why, or why do you think that we're not communicating across class? And ha has it changed, you know, since you're younger? Um, 
or is it getting worse? I think it's getting worse. We're living more segregated from one another. Nobody wants us around. Not in my backyard. I think that there's so many deep uh, historic wounds around the experience of poverty that are still alive in people that have made it out of poverty that until they do some of the healing for their parents and their grandparents because those wounds see the model in America is you get up get out and never look back. And what happens is people take their wounds with them into their next class affiliation if they make it out. And then there's some type of retardation in my way of thinking and understanding how wounds activate through generations and fester mm -hmm. and live on and are in need of healing. Um, I think that's a problem. So I try to get at those deep places where our humanity as a collective are wounded and kind of get some balm going for that, mm -hmm. some medicine. Mm -hmm. yeah. Then maybe we can recover our intelligence again. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, so that, I think that's also, that kind of goes into our next question, which is like, um, how do you see poetry or music or creativity or art fit into that process of um, healing some of these wounds or um, or bridging gaps between classes or dismantling the, the 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 internalized things that really hurt us and hurt all of us in in these larger systems that we're a part of? Where do you see your poetry? What do you, what do you think? What is it about poetry or well, art that does that? It's a language that okay when you're talking about you know, unfairness and inequality, there's a lot of emotional baggage that comes up. Like people experience shame and shame can shut down a conversation quicker than John went to the army. So when you are engaging with creative voice, you can side circuit, activating things like guilt and shame and the things that stop people <laughs> from being able to think clearly and communicate with one another. And, and poetry and song does that, and story and humor. That's why I especially have found humor to be so useful. I mean, comedians really are such social geniuses and healers, political healers. The truth-telling that you can do with art oh, so transformative, you know, possibly transformative. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I tell the kids to, you know, make some legal money. <laughs> I always tell my kids, take legal drugs, go to a shrink. <laughs> I don't want you getting caught up, you know, and let's learn how to make some legal money with your gifts and talents. And you will find in my community that I come from, our oral talents, our gifts. Mm -hmm. Let's learn how. So I started teaching the youngsters, you know, how to. Bu I busted down a lot of doors to share my poetry.
before the spoken word movement ever took off, right? I was doing that before. So I was helping the youngsters in Minnesota along with that. And I always told them, don't you worry about flunking that test. They haven't created a test yet that can even come close to measuring your brilliance. And you know what? Boom! Their little backbones go. <laughs> There's another backbone straightener. <laughs> now get out there and share your wisdom. And we would travel all over the state and share our poetry at different conferences and different, you know, civic events. And now spoken word is really going well in our state, in Minnesota. I know in Chicago, you can letter now in spoken word in this public schools, just like choir and football. Mm -hmm. But you gotta build and where people's strengths are mm -hmm. instead of trying to force them to fit into a, some kind of a mold that is just incongruent with their nature, mm -hmm. which is what schools do a lot to us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Was I? Did, yeah, got it. Sometimes, you know, I go off on tangents, especially with my little impaired mind today. No, that's, I think that's wonderful. <laughs> so don't worry about that. Um, so you, um, you mentioned. Oh, I got to say one more thing. Sure, yeah. One of my students from Hecua actually tattooed that little saying right under her heart two years ago. You know, because I always tell you, are not a test score. No. They haven't made a test yeah. that can measure my brilliance. Because, yeah. <laughs> you know, we grow up believing that we're not intelligent. Mm -hmm. It is a profound wound. Mm -hmm. And we internalize it right away because we walk into school uncompartmentalized with all of our intelligences operating at the same time. Mm -hmm. Kinesthetic, intuitive, spiritual, mm -hmm. artistic. All the different ways a human being can be intelligent. We haven't learned to compartmentalize. We walk into schools and freak the teachers out. They don't know what to do with us, so let's get them on meds, you know. <laughs> they must have ADHD. <laughs> um, where was I going with that? Well, I'm, what I'm hearing is there's um, there's there's something of a disagreement between artistic expression because it is so exploratory and it, it can uh, represent different types of intelligence and celebrate them, um, uh, but but it doesn't always fit into the regimented structure of of um, of uh, progressing into adulthood. I mean, I think we were we were talking when we put these questions together. We were talking about the the trope of the starving artist who has so much value but is not valued. Right? It is a trope anyway. Uh, like I a, hated these questions. <laughs> reading them this morning. Like a like a theme, you know, like um, a caricature almost a stereotype. A stereotype, yeah. Of um, and. I, you know, I can personally relate to that, I, and you could too. Yeah. And so we were, we were just thinking, in oh, school you too, like, you're told, oh. you're told, don't become a poet. You're never going to make any money. You, you can't support yourself as a poet. You know, so it's, 
it kind of turns you off of this beautiful form of create of creating art um unless you have the the audacity to pursue it anyway despite what everyone tells you you know so i think we were thinking about how that intersects with um with the work that you're doing yeah and i'm hearing i'm you know hearing every this. human liberation movement in the history of the humans yeah. has musicians at the forefront right so it's a very important valuable role right. And we can help people have conversations that don't happen. There's a really a lot of evidence that our role in society is very valuable, needed, and should be supported. Although, the people that get funding sometimes in my state, I'm like, really? A lot of them are downwardly mobile by choice. Artsy fartsy, ooh. <laughs> <clears throat> sure, yeah, of course. <laughs> and it's... none of us get funding uh -huh. yeah. <clears throat> from where I'm from. <laughs> so mm, I have some issues with with all of that. But when you are on the prophetic edge of things, you're not going to be popular. Mm. Always. <laughs> so look at who is popular. Hmm. And then do some snooping and find out who's unpopular. Mm -hmm. hmm. Yeah. Wow, there's a lot there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh. That's a whole other podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. Oh. But it, I think it does, I mean, yeah, it, it's in keeping of what we were wondering about. So, I mean, you were talking about this turn of phrase. Yeah, this, so, um, yeah, yeah, as far as like the starving artist, you mean? Or I, I was thinking some people are so poor, all they have is money. Yeah, some people are so poor, all they have is money. And I like that. I really like that term. And, and, and so, like, one of the questions that I had out of that idea is this idea of like um, all communities have assets. They have things that are of value. All people have, have an inherent value. So for you, your experience of working in impoverished communities or um, you know, individuals that you know, are in poverty, what, what do you see as being their assets? What are the things that those communities have, those individuals have that they've developed because of their, this identity that's been forced on them of being in poverty that all people now, no, ma no matter where they fall in the in you know the classist divides that divide all of us, what are some of the assets that those communities have that we can all stand to benefit from, in your opinion? Well, um, hands down, our generosity and sharing. I mean, my sons brought kids home from school, and sometimes they didn't leave for years. And no, I didn't get foster care payments. Most of us down here uh, can't access state and federal and county funding streams that assist people to care for other people because someone in our family has caught a felony or is on paper. There's a little cultural competency language for you when you hear about being on paper. Now you know what that is. Someone caught a felony. But we continue to provide hospitality and act as a safety net to one another and for and with one another, even 
at great risk to our own well-being mm -hmm. because the poverty industry criminalizes people practicing mutual assistance. Human beings have been helping one another since the beginning of time. But in the poverty industry, you are criminalized for practicing mutual assistance. When my son came home from school one day in second grade and said, Mom, are we poor? I said, well, why did that question come up? Well, Joey said, I got a free lunch ticket at school, so I'm poor. Like, that's really bad. So you tell Joey, <laughs> you know, we're poor in money. We're materially poor, but we're rich. In spirit, we're rich in community. We're rich in a circle of sharing and caring where none of us individually have what we need to make our, our basic needs happen regularly. <laughs> but within our circle of sharing, our sacred mm -hmm. circle of sharing, we had what we needed. And there's ways in the underground economy of kindness mm -hmm. and barter and, you know, <laughs> where people know how to hijack electricity and hmm. where people know how to make sure they can't turn off the water <laughs> main when they come. We have really good survival skills, you know. I mean, I know I learned how to take out my own teeth from not having medical insurance for so many years. It hurts really bad, too. But um, we have a lot of skills, and we're not going to tell you all of them because then you'll come and try to commodify them or write about them or become the expert on our life. We're tired of the vultures and the experts. We don't trust y'all. So we're not going to tell you everything, uh, especially since most of them would get us arrested. Because if you're trapped in the uh, poverty industry in America, you're doing something mm -hmm. to survive mm -hmm. that isn't legal. Mm -hmm. We have been fodder for the prison industrial complex, more so every day. Um, but if we trust you, we might start letting you in and learning some of the things we do. But just like I said yesterday, too, we know how to make, we have pharmaceutical creation mm -hmm. capabilities. Mm -hmm. Like, we laugh. I mean, you could come, we're in chronic grief, because, you know, like what I told Nathaniel this morning, I'm over 200 people dead mm -hmm. in the last few years. Mm -hmm. I mean, we live in chronic grief. Mm -hmm. So we have to learn how to do some really incredible survival skills, and we laugh a lot. A lot. It's such a healing thing. One time we had a, a laughing party at my house <laughs> after a concert, and somebody laughed so hard they had to go to the emergency room because they had deep, <laughs> deep muscle damage <laughs> from laughing so hard. <laughs> but see, you can rearrange the chemicals in your brain. Mm -hmm. And there's things that we know about surviving that are that have gotten us through I, there's much more to talk about on that subject but I'll cap it there hmm. well, so what I'm hearing is that there's a certain first of all thank you for for sharing all that because there's there's a certain that aspect of we have knowledge that our history has shown is too sacred to just give out 
to people because they'll run away with it. And so I think... Or th- turn it into a weapon. Yeah. Or weaponize it. Yeah. Weaponize that information. Turn it against you. Yes. Like when my t- gum infections were so bad, my best friend is a native elder who knew plants and knew where to get me, where to pick this really wild, good antibiotic and how to prepare it. And she probably saved my life Mm. because, you know, teeth infections can kill you really quick. Mm. And I had no idea I was systemically sick from it. She probably saved my life. So when I wanted to talk about this plant on Facebook, she said, no, do not put that on Facebook. The pharmaceuticals will come and rip it off, you know, or no, we do not share our sacred information. I said, okay, you know. Well, so you've talked about generosity, and and one of the other questions we, we um, you know, Laura had was about affluenza. We give away our last about. everything, every last corner in our house. Our last food, we share everything. It's such a beautiful thing. And people that I notice who are experiencing too much wealth, they're very stingy. Or they have to get a damn tax write off for every penny they wanna, they might wanna drop. Oh, don't get me going. Affluenza, yes, it is a spiritual disease. It certainly is. Mm-hmm. The way that wealth and resources are designed to flow unfairly in our world, Heck yeah, and we're all, all affected by it. Yeah. You know, I got a little crew of country club classroom with older, white, retired businessmen I'm working with right now. (laughs) Keep that knowledge close. (laughs) Man. One of them, I've been with them for several years now, one of them has gotten to the point where he's actually able to practice doing reparations giving now. Do, so do you, do you see like a, a necessary rehabilitation process for folks yes, that are... Yes, because people have been socialized to practice all this toxic charity shit. And let's have more social services and let's have more nonprofit shit. I had to start nonprofit prevention in my neighborhood, and then the more the nonprofits came, the worse the poverty got, you know? Mm-hmm. We have socialized a whole class of people to manage us in our poverty, in, the, in our daily life, the crisis of living in poverty every day. Good grief. <sighs> so, so would you, would you argue then that there's a dehumanization process that happens through, through wealth? Yes, duh. <laughs> Would okay. you? Yeah, Let well, so it's, but <laughs> what do you think? Yeah, but it's, it's but it's interesting because I think the narrative of also has often been flipped, which is that poverty dehumanizes people. Which I'm, I mean, there might be some truth to that too, but it really comes from the wealth that's being leached. Come and, on now, and, and, tell the truth and okay. shame the devil. <laughs> okay, so that's being you didn't siphoned even need off. Need to ask me that question. <laughs> Speak yeah. on it, poet. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. But yeah, these are, these are, that's, that's where the real, what I'm hearing from what you're saying at your testimony is that uh, the, it's, the problem is not with poor folks. It's with the systems and the people that are, that are siphoning off that, that wealth. Well, it's become our problem now. Mm-hmm. In America, we have several generations of internalized oppression that we have to heal from now. Mm-hmm. 
because we have learned to become victims to get our crumbs, our section eight or our food, whatever. We had to act like victims. We are too threatening to people that need to manage us. <laughs> if we don't show up as grateful, what's our other roles that we're allowed to play? Compliant. Compliant. Mm -hmm. What else? Passive. Criminal. Passive. Or the criminal. Let's see, whatever ways are, other ways are we pimped out? But when we show up in our intelligence shit, it makes people really nervous. So, I show up at the country club with my old dudes and oh, they are going through conniption fits. <laughs> it's a really good little study I'm doing. <laughs> Grandma Julia at the country club in the richest neighborhood in Minnesota with my little bag of stories and songs and uh, rantings and curse words. How did he get started? Because I went and spoke at their church in their fancy neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And one of them guys said, you know what, I think we need to learn about justice. I said, yeah. Would you like to learn how to practice it and not just talk about it? Mm -hmm. Because people don't know how to practice justice. They've been taught how to practice toxic charity. And, and going along that line, um, you know, we, we encounter this when we're we were evaluating different organizations that do provide social services that there's this benefits cliff. Have you heard of this? What? So basically Is like that like what they're calling hunger food insecurity now. I was like, do you all have to keep making up all this language? Well like, well it's the phenomenon okay. where if somebody gets help if they start earning more than Yo, the, yeah. the maximum income allowable for that program they suddenly have no more access to we the services. We call it hustling backwards. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of perverse. It's like, I, I'm actually doing better, but I'm not going to receive my benefits because I'm actually advancing, you know. So I tried to go to school and got a Pell Grant. Uh -huh. I really tried. Uh -huh. And they cut off my food stamps. Like, my kids can eat the textbooks. <laughs> Right. Like you fuckers. The logic doesn't and really make sense. you know, sense. the average taxpayer doesn't know that we have it's systemic barrier after mm -hmm. systemic barrier after systemic barrier, and then they have the nerve to call us lazy. Mm -hmm. Right, right. So there's all sorts of issues with that, that progression, right? So um, anyway, just, I'm just, it's interesting to hear what you're saying about these organizations and the services because... Um, I think that they see some of the problems too, but it's it's a federal policy issue. Well, we should get know? rid of all of that and just have guaranteed basic income mm -hmm. for everybody so that we are not pit against one another down here on the bottom. Right. We are the majority, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. What would happen in this world if we were not pit against one another? Mm -hmm. I love working at the intersection of working class people. <gasps> At least I'm not those people. Mm -hmm. I love my work right now in community colleges because that one is so virulent. Mm -hmm. But yes, um, I'm glad you're learning about mm -hmm. the benefits. Clear. It's just one way it's been <laughs> described, but you know, it's it's essentially. But that. most it's people don't know about it, do yeah. they? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, they know about it. They just they might not 
they called by a different name. They don't they're, they're aware of that. They're for like, oh my God, don't like, let oh, them get a few extra dollars right. like I got from my parents. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> it's just, it's coming from a different place. But um, so actually that, that is real. So that, that flows in well. So we, we were wondering, you know, if you, if you do, notwithstanding a realloca- reallocation of wealth, like you're saying, like everyone has a basic income. What yeah, we could replace the whole poverty industry, boom, yeah. and it'd probably be cheaper. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a fair point. And John so, McKnight did a study in Cook County where it was cheaper to do, to do that. He's my spiritual uh, adopted grandfather. Mm-hmm. He's, he was the one who started the asset-based community development movement. Mm-hmm. And I just adore him. Mm-hmm. And it's called ABCD, mm-hmm. Asset-Based Community Development. I have my students say that over and over again. You are going to learn oral culture style. Now repeat after me. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that comes out of the question of like sort of what you were saying. Like what, where would you, st- let's not start on our weaknesses. Let's start on our strengths and develop and plan from there. Yeah. And learning to have language. Like, I wish I had done this yesterday, but repeat after me. People experiencing homelessness. People experiencing homelessness. People experiencing poverty. People experiencing poverty. People experiencing incarceration. People experiencing incarceration. People experiencing mental illness. People experiencing mental illness. See, now, one way you could be my ally, my upholder, of my dignity mm-hmm. is by inserting that little word experiencing any time. Yeah. You want to say that lady over there, that homeless lady, no, not that, that woman, the woman on the, over there experiencing homelessness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. See, we are not our poverty. We are not our homelessness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we are not our incarceration. We are not our, our illnesses. And, but we are people experiencing a tragedy, yeah. Mm-hmm in the way in which wealth and resources are designed to flow unfairly. Mm -hmm. So when you can do people first language practices Mm -hmm. with us, Mm -hmm. especially if you're doing this metric stuff and talking about us, you know, just inserting that little word, I have heard. Mm -hmm. The conversation tinges a little differently. Mm -hmm. People experiencing. So that's the way everybody can start right now Mm -hmm. to change the conversation by safeguarding our human dignity in that small way. Mm-hmm. That's really a big way because language oh, is a powerful thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I um, hope you don't cut that part out. No. Because I, I really want people, you know, I want this world to be better for my grandkids. Yeah. Well, and I will use every little tool I can <laughs> <laughs> to make the effort yeah. that it would be so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, so, so we, so in, in in reading through some of the excerpts from your book, um, I was struck by these strong themes of um, motherhood and faith, and and the language you're using, and also what you're describing. So, um, so we'll shift a little bit, I think, here from um, focusing on on um, arts and and telling the story of poverty to to these themes. 
So did becoming a mother, do you think strengthened, do you think it strengthened your advocacy to tell the story of poverty? Be- because you have an um, intergenerational interest in making things better. This just smells so dissecting. Okay. I don't yeah. even like that question. Okay. Yeah, that's fine. But if something pops in my brain, mm-hmm. I'll answer with something. But sure, it feels like a dissective sure. question. Sure. Okay. I yeah. I guess I was thinking like, did if for example, if I did I if I were if I were in your shoes, did I start telling the story of poverty or or, or advocating for it at a young age, or was it? Was was becoming a mother kind of like a shift? Did that create a shift in how I was telling the story or how often I told it? Or was there any change in how you thought about um, the why you were telling the story? And it doesn't have to, you know, maybe I there was, was born no with a keen taste for justice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think it's from my Irish people being hammered for 800 years. Mm-hmm. So some of us are just born with, oh. You know, this is not right. Mm -hmm. It is not right Mm -hmm. to mistreat other humans and disallow them from obtaining, meeting their basic human needs. This is just not right. Right. I was born that way. Having kids, it got exacerbated Mm -hmm. because I got stuck. Mm -hmm. I thought I was going to get out. Mm -hmm. I think my mother was the original welfare mother in Minnesota. <laughs> uh, but me being the big mouse in the family, my poem was published in the Minneapolis Star and Tribune and my extent, large working class extended family saw that and had a fit and accused me of trying to kill my grandmother with shame. See, for working class people, there is no greater shame than to be on the dole. You know, to be those people and to talk about the P word out loud, poverty. Oh, my God, I was excommunicated. That made our poverty worse. You know, there's material poverty and there's spiritual poverty. I have noticed that people that have too much wealth or people who we could also say people experiencing wealth. So, yeah, people experiencing, people experiencing wealth. Because people are not their wealth either, right? People experience, okay. But people experiencing wealth have a certain amount, uh, it looks like to me, some spiritual poverty <laughs> and social poverty and emotional <laughs> And we have that going on in our community too, but mostly our big problem is this material wealth, mm-hmm. lack of material wealth. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, what was your question? No, that's fine. Being a parent just made <laughs> everything worse. Okay. Like it was like, yeah, I'm fucked now. <laughs> but I didn't know it at the time. I was young and dumb, like, oh, I can do anything. I'm Wonder Woman. <laughs> oh, Did life have a different plan for me? No. Um, yeah, that was a great answer, so. Um, <laughs> did you want to ask that? Yeah, so um, this this idea of um, telling the story of poverty, I think, is an interesting sort of question, because 
Um, for me, I, it, it, you've talked a lot about there are stories, right? And everybody's well, experience yeah, of I'm poverty is a little different. Telling the story, because I can't speak for everybody. I can only tell my story. Well, so that that actually leads right into the next question I had, which was about this idea of being a person who has who is taking it upon themselves to call into the space justice and talk about how the dehumanization that happens in poverty. How do you tow that line, in being an advocate, how do you tow that line between speaking for and speaking with, telling people's, uh, telling other people's story as if it were your own and telling your own story as if it were the only story? Do you, like, how do you balance that? Or I don't not? do that. Okay. <laughs> I tell my own story, and I get permission if I'm going to include somebody in anything that I'm doing. You know, that's sacred territory. So you stick with your own stories, and if, yes. if, it, if it feels at all appropriate, it's very important to you to make sure you get consent that a person will... Or mostly, I bring them along nice. so they okay. can tell their own. Because it's very liberating to be able to tell your story if people have the capacity to listen. That is a part of our liberation. It, it works to be able to tell, because we're so not wanting to be listened to <laughs> in our world. Oh, it's so hard for me to hear how your life is. Well, you should try living it then. <laughs> you think it's hard hearing about it? So I'm glad like there's a group doing spiritual listening in Minneapolis and training people to become spiritual listeners. So telling a story in a therapeutic way is really important. It really, it's actually better than meds sometimes. Sure, absolutely. <laughs> Especially when you're med resistant. Man, <sighs> I wish I could find some meds that work on my body they just nothing works so i have to manufacture joy all the time mm-hmm. <laughs> to keep me floating keep me here <laughs> i'm sorry did i answer your absolutely. question absolutely I feel like there's so much more. You know, we could have had a whole podcast on each question. Mm -hmm. That's right. Well, I love that you've touched on how there is healing and there's transformation and there's empowerment in just telling your story. In doing it the right way. Not just asking us to be some type of a problem with a microphone Mm -hmm. so you can get funding. Mm -hmm. See, a lot of the (laughs) poverty industry has used us that way. They want to put a microphone and ask us to be a walking victim. I'm like, mm. no, Mm-mm. unless we can flip the script and show up with our brilliance. Mm-hmm. No, thank you. <laughs> you better go home and learn something. Don't come to me with that. And how can they create spaces where you can flip the script, basically? Like, what have been we some do examples? We with one another. Yeah around learning not to not tolerate certain things. There's certain things we've learned to tolerate because we had to. Some of us are throwing those yokes off now. And you know what, it looks attractive. And then other people want to, oh, how can I do that? <laughs> you look like you're having a good time. <laughs> oh. I'm trying to work with this poor people's campaign right now. Mm-hmm. And 
um, was Reverend Barber and all that whole crew. Mm -hmm. He saw my poem on a church wall in North Carolina several years ago and said, who is that woman? <laughs> and how do I get one of these poems? <laughs> Anyways, it's like a lot of the core leaders of the Minnesota campaign, you know, like are outside of the experience of poverty, mm -hmm. but they're do-gooders that, mm -hmm. and all like a lot of faith community people and genuine lovely people. But I just said, look, we are not gonna come to these meetings. <laughs> I started meetings anonymous, but can we have a potluck and singing mm -hmm. and dancing? We need these things to survive in mm -hmm. this world. So if we can have fun <laughs> together as we plot a way <laughs> to build relationships from which all good things flourish. People don't know how to build relationships anymore. In order to build relationships, we have to learn how to communicate with one another, right? So I go all the way back around to this whole communication thing again. So yeah, trying to make things change Let's have some fun and food and right. singing yeah. and laughter. Um, and, uh, and you know, I'm thinking of places where that, that does happen, and I think um, church is one place that I can think of. And so um, thinking about the language of faith and um, where it's practiced and um, for better or worse, where it should be practiced, but it's not, you know. Um, so I guess my question is, what moments, places, people, and situations inspire your sense of faith? Oh, I prayed 24-7 with every breath, mm -hmm. you know, looking at the clouds, seeing a tree, seeing the beauty in somebody, mm -hmm. looking at your beautiful eyes. Mm -hmm. Everything is spiritual to me. I know I had a friend when I named my book. <laughs> She's a sociologist. She said, you can't have God in the title. <laughs> the G word. <laughs> you can't have God in the title of your book. Nobody's gonna read it in academia or any, you know. I said, you're being sociologically incorrect right now. <laughs> Anybody I know who has been through surviving oppression and genocide and <laughs> you know the being trapped in the underbellies of this world i asked them how did you survive it was their faith mm -hmm. no matter what their faith is mm -hmm. but their faith helped them in all my oral history taking mm -hmm. their faith was that cane to lean on to survive with our humanity intact, not just survive in our skin and bones, but to survive with our humanity intact. That's quite another thing. Mm -hmm. So I said, ah, no, God's gonna stay in the, and now it's being used in doctorals and mm -hmm. master's classes and obviously wherever I go, people are saying, oh, we read that and blah, blah, blah. I sure wish I'd get some royalties, though. Mm. Shit. Mm. <laughs> but I'm up to 90 um, reviews on Amazon now. 
<laughs> well, if you get to a hundred, they'll bump up your marketing. But I never make, I don't make a cent on Amazon, but I feel like I'm just floating all over the place. <laughs> Well, no, I th yeah, that well, another question we had was what role does faith play for people in poverty in particular? And um, but I think maybe it would just make it more general, like in adversity in particular, like having gone through um, any kind of difficult situation. What does faith do for us? It's in some cases, it's helping to help us reason through it or um, it's just giving us a moral strength. Um, or with the energy to keep moving, you know, but, um, I think, um, we won't get into how it's misused. Well, so that, that, I mean, I yeah. had so many people, my <laughs> students this last semester were like, there was so many of them that had never even considered having faith as a part of their life because of the theological malpractice right. that they experienced. Right in their lives and then they read book and we discussed it in class and they said oh you know I think I threw the baby out with the bathwater this might be useful in my journey well it might it might not but a lot of people are terrifically wounded under theological malpractice and spiritual abuse mm across the board in all religions. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of work with that too. Yeah, that was one of our questions is there may be disparities between uh, how Christian values and how Christianity is practiced it, or any religion, oh. it doesn't have to be Christianity, but. We have um, to slay that inner white savior. Mm. <sighs> <laughs> he is a dangerous dude, mm. yeah. Oh my goodness. Please go home, colonizer. Oh, yeah. get some help. You need a recovery program. I have a program for recovering missionaries. Yeah. <laughs> the first step is that quote by that beautiful Aboriginal Australian woman. If you have come to help me, you are wasting your time. But if you have come because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let us work together. That's my first step in recovering missionary program. That's great. <laughs> We've all been carefully taught to act in some very unbecoming ways. <laughs> Do you have any other thoughts, Stephen? You've really helped me and illuminated me on your own experience and and your and the role of your your art and your creativity in this in this process and and I'm just so thankful that you're you've been here to have this conversation allowed us to have this conversation and to be here on the campus I think everybody who has heard you and your work is is gifted has been gifted with that truth and so I'm just really thankful to have been able to speak with you today Oh, thank you for sharing that with me. Because, you know, I don't get paid very well. The world has not figured out how to, how to have budgets for people like me. Mm -hmm. So we continue to do our work and sacrifice, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's, it's very lovely to receive a heartfelt acknowledgement like that. 
It means a lot. Thank you. Thank you. I will second that, although I did miss <laughs> you yesterday, but um, I think really what, what I've come, come away with is that you're, thank you for being so honest and um, um, because it's sometimes difficult to get at the meat of these issues because people are tiptoeing around what we really want to say. So <laughs> thank you very much for that. You're welcome. Yeah. Maybe I can come back. Yeah. Please. Yeah, we would you know, love to Maybe you Virginia Tech will invite me back to do a training for all of their instructors or for mm -hmm. something. You just never know. Let's think about it, yeah. You know, it's nice to have the be the professional right. <laughs> stranger. You can come to town yeah. and say things nobody else that lives here can say. That, that's a it's fair very point. very valuable. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. To come and be a truth teller from elsewhere. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. And then it brings silos together. I've seen mm -hmm. it. Yeah. Like yeah. that in that book called Stone Soup. Mm -hmm. That guy who came into town and said, I'm hungry and nobody had any food. Mm. And so he just started boiling up some stones. Pretty soon somebody found a carrot. Somebody else found an onion. Somebody else found a cabbage. But before you knew it, there was a lovely pot of beautiful soup right. that everybody enjoyed eating together. Yeah. But it was the stranger mm. that brought them together. Mm. I'd forgotten that detail. That's a good point. <laughs> huh. Well, that was a beautiful analogy. Thank you. <laughs> Are we done? We are. Yeah. So thank you, Julia, for really <laughs> gifting us with. I hope you can make something out of this. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Easily. Easily. No problem. You've been listening to the Trustees Without Borders interview with author, musician, and poverty activist Julia Dinsmore. I'm your host, Andy Morikawa. Trustees Without Borders is a podcast production of the Virginia Tech Institute for Policy and Governance. Trustees Without Borders features leading practitioners, thinkers, writers, all working to strengthen community capacity for innovation and creative change. You can find an archive of Trustees Without Borders interviews and other information at our website, www.ipg.vt.edu. So until next time, remember that as trustees of community, it's our responsibility to work without borders or limits on our ideas, on our aspirations, without borders on what we think is possible to solve problems that keep us from achieving a just, inclusive community that works for us all. Yeah, baby. <laughs> Love that. Mm. Is that on your website? Because I want to... I actually looked for that language to try to post yeah. publicly so that people will get ready to listen to my little podcast, your little podcast. We'll share the link with you, so you're, you know, please, please I mean, share I have the it, link, yeah. but I couldn't find that specific. Oh. Yeah, because that is so good. Yeah. That's it, is good. it is really good. Yeah. Oh, thank you.